Good to be with you. Um, my name is Drew, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of Salt City Church, and it's actually my first time back at Salt Company this semester, and I've really missed you guys. I'm genuinely excited to see you guys here and to get to speak to you. So just before I came here, I did what I always do before I come here, which is play with my kids. And if you guys hang, hang out with me for just a short time, you'll start to hear me tell stories about my son, Gabe. I just love my son, Gabe. He's awesome. And um, one of the really fun things that Gabe, who's two, has been doing recently is he's been watching the show on TV, and he's picked up this line from this show where the superhero in the show says, activate power. So whenever the superhero doesn't have the strength to do what they're trying to do, they say, activate power. And so Gabe has latched onto that in his little two-year-old heart because he's got short man syndrome, right? He's, he has been our youngest for a long time until my son Jude was born. And so he's our fifth kid. And he's always been trying to keep up with the pack and run around. And so you can tell he's trying to constantly activate power. And so what he does is he grabs either a toy sword or what he calls a lasso, which is some kind of belt. And he just walks around the house and he's got his voice down. So it's something like this. He's like, activate power. And then he just grabs this sword or lasso and loves to chase his brother and sisters around the house. So this will constantly be happening. We've got like kind of this big island in the middle of our kitchen and he just is chasing somebody around. And depending on who it is, it could get really ugly really quick. Like with, with my four-year-old daughters, he's running and like hitting them with the sword, like activate power, activate power. And so I'm trying to discourage that behavior, but I'm trying to encourage him saying activate power because it's just cool. So like when I change his diaper, I'll be like, activate poopy changing power. And then he's like, activate power. And we have this thing where we're just saying activate power to each other and that's kind of like where we're at in our relationship, and it's really fun. Anyway, um, I, think, I think that that phrase, actually, Gabe, as he was saying that to me this week, and I was studying this passage of Scripture, I think it gets us to a more serious question that a lot of us have in our Christian lives. You may have trusted in Jesus, and you believe that you've been forgiven of your sin. But if we were to sit down across the table with each other and I were to start to ask you some questions about how your life is going and um, how obedient of a Christian life you're living, you would begin to feel ashamed. Because if you're honest with yourself, you're like, I believe that I have the power to overcome sin in my life, but I don't know how to activate the power. And so what Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, the first 17 verses is about, is how to activate the power in your life. Okay, so here's a question I got for you. This is, this is like a real survey. Do you want me to read Romans 7 verse 1 through 817 really fast? Do you want me to read Romans 7 through 8 verse 17 normal pace? Or do you want me to skip it and just jump right into the message. So I'm really going to take a poll, and I'm going to do what you guys say, okay? Who wants me to read it fast? 
All right. Who wants me to read it normal? This is going to take a while, by the way. Okay, who wants me to just skip it and I'll reference it and stuff like that? Not, like nobody voted. There were like four people total who voted. I don't know what to do with that data, so I'm going to skip it. All right. Okay, so, so basically what, what we're going to see is from the beginning of Romans, you guys remember Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So what we believe here at Salt Company is that the power is in the gospel. If you want to activate God's power in your life, it has something to do with the very elementary principles and truths of the faith. You always go back to the gospel. And so we're going to look at three simple truths about the gospel to help us activate God's power in our lives. And so we're going to frame it this way. Number one, the truth that you are not good. Number two, the truth that you are not condemned. And number three, the truth that you are God's son. So number one, the bad news first, you are not good. Romans 7, verses 7 through 12 says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's saying actually something quite profound here. He's talking about the different phases that he's gone through in his life in relationship to the law of God. So the law of God means really the over 600 commandments that God lays out in the Old Testament, but we could boil it down to the big 10 commandments. And he says, basically, I started off having this view of the law that the law was good and I'm good. So the law and I are kind of a perfect match. So this is great. The law says, you shall not murder. I don't kill anybody. I'm obeying the law. And so I feel great about myself. And if I hear that someone has murdered somebody, then I look down on them and I think about them. Why can't they just keep God's law? Why are they so messed up? Why can't people be like me? Why can't people be as good as me? There's sort of another view of the law that Paul proposes in this text, another view of the Ten Commandments, and he talks about people who live apart from the law. So there's another view of the law that says the law is not good. In other words, the law doesn't really have anything to do with my daily life. So I'm going to ignore the Ten Commandments. But the reason I don't really have to pay attention to the Ten Commandments is because I'm good. I know how to live my life. If I want to steal something, 
who's to say that I can't steal something? If I want to commit adultery, who's to say I can't commit adultery? After all, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. And so I'm going to live my life apart from the law because I believe that happiness comes apart from the law. And Paul says both of those views of the law are in error. And he came to see that through a very specific experience with a very specific command. He says, then I got to the last of the commandments. Do not covet. And then he said something crazy happened. The commandment, do not covet, produced all sorts of covetousness in me. And he began to see that he had not been keeping all of the Ten Commandments. Because what the Tenth Commandment, the commandment to not covet, says is that all of the other commandments are most fundamentally and foundationally not about your external behavior. They're actually about your heart. If you even want to break the commandments, you have broken the commandments. If you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. If you even get angry at someone, you've committed murder. There's no such thing as a white lie. It's just a lie. And if you even want what somebody else has on Instagram or Facebook, you have, in essence, said, God, thanks but no thanks for my life. I'd rather have their life. And what makes matters worse, what Paul is saying is, in hearing that commandment, it didn't just expose that he was sinful, it gave him new ideas for how to sin. You experienced that before? You see a certain person doing a certain thing, you begin to feel jealous toward what they're doing or what they have, and it actually gives you an idea of how to pursue your own desires. So the commandment, he says then, killed him. It slayed him. It buried him in the ground. It showed him the depth of his depravity. I got kind of a funny story to illustrate this. So I remember I was on a canoe trip with my family one time. I was in high school. We were canoeing down this river. And we came around a corner, and there was a 40-foot-tall bridge over the river. And on the bridge, it said, Danger. Do not jump off the bridge. I immediately thought, it'd be fun to jump off that bridge. It'd be really fun to jump off that bridge. I began to analyze the situation. I said, you know, 40 feet tall, the water's like eight or nine feet deep. I think I could jump off that bridge. I think somebody put that sign there because they didn't want anybody to have any fun. So I didn't say anything. Just canoeing along, didn't say anything to my parents. Finished the thing, you know, put the canoe up on that little truck, went home, went to my room, called my friends, hey guys, tomorrow, meet at my house. I'm going to jump off this bridge. It's going to be awesome. 
I had like three or, more, three or four of my friends together. We drove down there. You know what we did? We jumped off that bridge all day. <laughs> you see, what happened is the sign that now I believe was there for my good, and I correctly recognized that I was the idiot. The sign wasn't bad. I was bad. I was dumb, right? I recognize that the sign was there for my good, but I took something that was good and I allowed that good thing to give me the idea to do a bad thing. The good thing produced in me a bad thing, not because the good thing was bad, but because I'm bad. And the reason that the commandment, do not covet, produces in us covetousness, or the commandment, do not commit adultery, produces in us this idea that adultery might be a good thing. The reason that that creates those desires in us is not because the law is bad, it's because we're bad. So here's how the law kills you. When you recognize that the law is good and you are bad. You're not good. The problem has never been with the law. The problem has always been with you. Paul says, the first step to your freedom is having a correct view of yourself and coming to this devastating admission that you are a terrible person. You know that. Your parents are not right about you. Your friends are not right about you. Your professors are not right about you. I don't even have a correct perception of you. The word of God is the truth about you. So when God says, you're not good, it doesn't matter what your mama says. You're not good. You're a terrible person. In fact, this is what Paul says. Think how countercultural this is. Romans 7 verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. The first way that we activate God's power in our lives counterintuitively is we come to the end of ourselves. We recognize that the answer is not by looking within. It's actually looking outside of ourselves that we find our freedom. And we begin to move into that freedom in our second understanding that we find in this passage. And it really is surprising that we first find out that we are not good, and we secondly find out that we are not condemned. Just let that settle on you before I even begin to explain it. You understand? Nothing good dwells in you. God knows every secret thought that you've ever had. He knows everything about you. He knows how you've been trying to cover that up, how you've been trying to fake that. He says, are you ready to admit that? Because if you're ready to admit that, I'm ready to tell, some, tell you something unbelievable. And it's that you're not condemned. Let me just stop and pray before I get into this, because this is, 
This is big. This is big time. Father God, how crazy that in a world of self-acceptance, where we're supposed to look inside of ourselves and like what we see, you call us to look into the mirror of your law and to not like what we see. But now you want to tell us that we're not condemned. And I'm just recognizing it's impossible for us to believe that. We need you to open up our eyes right now. Show us what's in your word so that we can see it and believe it and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, the word condemnation here does not mean self-condemnation. We have a tendency to condemn ourselves. But actually, we're not the judge. So if you're in a place of condemning yourself, stop doing that. That's not your role. That's God's role. And he has said that your condemnation is based on your real moral guilt. You, in and of yourself deserve condemnation. Just before this passage, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. You and I both justly deserve the righteous anger of God. Just like a good judge punishes criminals according to their crime, God, being the good judge of the universe, must punish us because we have broken his law. And so because it's his condemnation that we're under and he's the judge, then he alone can take away the condemnation. He says, you want your condemnation taken away. Do you want to live guilt-free? Do you want to have freedom? He says, the freedom that you're looking for is not found in yourself it's not by changing your behavior. It's by being found in Christ. So let me first talk about the ways that we get off this course, okay? We can think that there's no condemnation by having faith in faith. Here's what I mean by that. You could be a person who is constantly judging their standing with God based on the amount of faith you have. Here's the problem with that. If you draw a line graph of your faith, it looks like this. <laughs> right? I'm at Salt Company. I'm singing. I believe in Jesus. 
I'm walking down the street looking at that girl's butt. I'm not doing so good. Right? And so then you're like, shoot, condemnation. And so you put your faith in your faith. Your faith kind of stinks. Mine's not that good. Yours probably isn't any better. Faith and faith doesn't work. How about faith in your performance? Right? Immediately when you think of your performance, you think of your spiritual disciplines. Right? And so I just click off a few of those, like when's the last time you fasted? When's the last time you read through the Bible in a year? How often do you consistently pray? And then I start talking about spiritual heroes who like got up at four in the morning and prayed for four hours, and pretty soon you feel like crap. And that's because you begin to put your faith in your performance and you realize your performance isn't up to snuff even in comparison to other people in this room and especially in comparison to like the real heroes of the faith. So you start to put your faith in your performance and you start to feel condemned. How about just general faith in God? Right? Just trusting in God. Well, what's the problem with that? It's got no content to it, right? God's just a three-letter word. He's just the big guy in the sky. He's the man upstairs. He's the guy I talked to before bed. He's love. He just loves me. But the problem with that is you do something really stupid, you do something really bad, and your conscience won't let you get away with just believing in God. If it doesn't have any content, it doesn't have any truth, it doesn't have any objectivity to it. How about faith in your experience, right? So some of you, you keep going back to when you were seven years old at family camp, right? So you start to get these, these feelings like, oh man, like, I really messed this up. Like, I did something this week that I never thought I would do in my life. I thought something, I felt something, that I never thought I would think or feel. I did something, I said something to my roommate that I never thought would come out of my mouth. I said something to my mom or dad that I haven't said since I was eight years old, nine years old. I said, I hate you. And I saw that ugliness come out of me. And you try to go back to your experience. But at family camp when I was seven years old, I, I had a shiver go down my spine. And your conscience still bothers you. You're like, I don't know what to do with the condemnation. How about faith in repentance, right? So you come every week, you hear convicting things, like, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to start doing this. And if you're really, really disciplined, that lasts like three days. And then you're back to your same patterns. So you come every week, and you're like, Okay, thank, thank goodness I'm back. That's all coming. I'm going to write down three action steps. I'm going to do them tomorrow. And maybe that'll wipe, wipe my slate clean. Because, because after all, repentance is changing your mind. And I think, I think I really changed my mind. Like I really, I rededicated my rededication to the rededication that I rededicated that I'm going to rededicate to Jesus. And because of all those dedication, like he sees that. And... But the question still remains. What, what about the condemnation? What about the fact that the standard isn't 
my experience or my faith or my performance, but I'm actually face-to-face with the law of God. I still have to deal with the law. What do I do with the law? Because the law is tough as nails. It's unbending. If you even look at a woman lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. Done. If you get angry with somebody, you've committed murder. Done. Even one time. You're guilty of breaking one law. You're guilty of breaking all of it. You remember the beginning of the story, right? One guy and his wife ate an apple and God damned the whole world. You think he doesn't take your sin seriously? You're talking about a different God. What do you do with your sin? Where do you go? In Christ Jesus. That's where you go. The only place where there's no condemnation is not in your faith or your experience or any of those things. It is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? How do you find yourself in Christ Jesus? The Apostle Paul spells it out incredibly clearly for us and beautifully in verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Here's what it means to be found in Christ Jesus. It means to place your faith, not in anything about you or your experience or your faith, but to place your faith in what Jesus has done in your place as your substitute. Jesus, first of all, this text says, became human. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. I love that wording, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The difference between Jesus and you is, you are a sinner, he just looked like one. But he wasn't one. He was fully human but fully God, not tainted with the same sin nature that we have. So when Jesus looked at the law of God, he rejoiced and he obeyed. He never disobeyed. He never wanted to disobey. All he ever wanted to do was do what was pleasing to our Heavenly Father. He looked at do not covet. He said, yes, I didn't even want to. You're a good God. And he was a good son because he was a good son, every single day of his life, he walked in perpetual relationship with God and obedience to God. And he delighted in it every single day of his life. His best friend said, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus never slandered. He never gossiped. He never lied. He was just always full of life. It looked like he was a sinner, but he wasn't a sinner. He was human, but not tainted in his flesh. Secondly, we see why Jesus came. He came to condemn our sin in the flesh. In other words, you might ask the question, why did Jesus put human flesh on 
and obey perfectly? Did he do that merely as an example for us? Did he do that so we would look at his life and we would say, I'm going to try to emulate Jesus? Good luck with that. You've already screwed it up. You cannot possibly emulate Jesus for your right standing with God. It's over. It's done. You can't do it because he was perfect and you and I are not. So the reason that Jesus came and he put on human flesh was so that he could hang on the cross for you and for me. So that he could be condemned in his flesh, in his human body, for what you have done in your flesh. The meaning of the cross is that Jesus is taking on the punishment that you deserve. He's saying, you know those thoughts of self-condemnation. You know why you have thoughts of self-condemnation? Because you deserve to be condemned. Do you know why you look at the Bible and you begin to read it and you feel bad? It's because you are bad. You're so bad that Jesus had to die for you. And he's so good and he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. And so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God violently killed his son in your place. So the Bible says that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus which means it's actually just of God to let you off the hook because your punishment has been paid on your substitute. He willingly took your place on the cross. But the story doesn't end there. We see that Jesus became human, that he was condemned in your place. And thirdly, we see that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us. In other words, he not only took the punishment for the bad stuff that you've done, but he also gives you his perfect moral record. Think about that. Jesus became human not only so he could be nailed to the cross and take your condemnation, but he actually wants to give you his righteousness. So that means if you're in Christ, it's not just that your sins has been, have been punished, it's that when God sees you, he sees you exactly as he sees Jesus. He sees you as if you have never broken the law. He sees you as if you have always done everything right for all eternity. As if you never made a mistake, as if you never lusted, as if you never got angry, as if you never broke any of the commandments of God. You see, whereas the line graph for our experience or our faith or whatever is like this, the line graph of Jesus' obedience is always the same. It's objectively perfect. 
And what God wants you to believe tonight is that Christianity has never been about you being good enough. The reason that it's good news that you're not good is because there is a life that is found in Christ that can never be found in your own performance. God wants you to activate the power of being found righteous in Jesus. He wants you to transfer your trust from yourself to him. But that's not even the end of the story. That, that, that good news that I just described to you is actually just a means to an end. That's called justification. God has wiped the slate clean, but why? Because you are God's son. You see, that was the legal work that God did to bring you into his family. He wants the most intimate relationship with you possible. With him as your father and you as his son. Romans 8, 13 through 17 says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the key verse that we have to understand, you have to get this right, you can't get the order wrong, you've got to think with me, is verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So here's the question. Is he saying that the evidence that you're God's son is that you're led by the Spirit? Or is he saying the reason that you're God's son is that you're led by the Spirit? Because if the reason that you're a son of God is that you're led by the Spirit, the pressure is on you you better be pretty good at being led by the Spirit. You better know what that's all about and have that figured out very quickly because if the reason that God has accepted you as his son is that you're led by his Spirit, then you're back on the performance track. But that's not what it says. What it says is that the evidence that you are a son of God is that you're led by the Spirit of God. In other words, if you would believe with me, that because of what Jesus has done, God delights in you. He loves you. When he looks at you, he sees an absolute beauty. He doesn't see what you see. He doesn't feel what you feel. He doesn't say what your dad said. He knows you can't measure up. He knows you're tired of performing. He knows you can't get your crap together. He knows you've been faking it. 
He knows that you feel disappointed with yourself. He knows you don't like the way that you look. He knows you wish you were taller and more athletic, that you were more like that person, that you're really not all that thankful for what he's done for you. He just wants your eyes to raise for a second to him. And he just wants you to hear him say, I love you. That's why I sent my son for you. I didn't want you to be condemned. I want, wanted you to know that you're righteous. And here's what he's saying. Do you know what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit? It's not being strong. It's not being powerful in yourself. It's not waking up happy. It's not having a certain temperament. It's not being a super Christian. It's about crying out. Crying out. Abba. Father. Such a good father. He just wants you to depend on him. To walk with him. To have relationship with him. Not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of the work of his only perfect son. See, what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit is to have the audacity to believe that God loves you. And then to relate to him, to begin to relate to him as if that's actually true. Look at what the text says later. It goes even further. So Abba, Father, you think like, that's about as low as the bar can get, right? Abba, Father. Like the word Abba, that was their equivalent of our word Dada, right? The first word all my kids say, Dada. It's so easy. He's like, I want it to be really, really, really easy for you guys to be in relationship with me. Just Dada. That's all you have to be able to say to be in relationship with God. But a few verses later, he actually says, the bar's actually even a little bit lower than that. Romans 8.26 says this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You see, it doesn't take anything from you. Just a posture of humility before God where you say, I just need you, God. Guys, you know over the past five weeks, I've had the opportunity to love someone who cannot do anything to perform for me. My son Jude has been in the hospital, had a congenital heart defect, He's still in the hospital. He has a breathing tube down his throat, which means his vocal cords don't work. So here's what I've been doing each and every day. I lean on his bed. I put my hand on his head. 
say, I love you, buddy. I love you. And when he screams, no sound comes out. All he can do is go. I just put my hand on his head. I say, I can hear you. I hear you. Because I'm not looking for him to perform for me. He's my son. Just love him. He has my acceptance apart from anything that he could do for me. I love him just because he's my son. God loves you just because you're his son or daughter. You're not good, but you're not condemned. You're loved. And what it means to activate the power of God in your life is to learn to live a life where God is delighting in you. And when God is delighting in you, you are freed up to love him and to love others, which is fulfilling his law. See, the only way to be a law keeper is to know that law keeping is not the basis for your relationship with God. It's that God has always loved you. Let's pray. Father God, um, would we believe this? good news. I don't know how everybody's processing this, God, but even in speaking this and reading over these words, I just feel like this is too good to be true. There's no way that someone could love me just as I am. There's no way that somebody would pay this price to bring me into their family. But I pray that that disbelief would turn into faith in our hearts and that we would be freed up to walk in love and that this campus and this city would see that and that they would want that and that everyone that we come in contact would be changed because we take the mask off, we stop performing and we start acting like your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.